Y'all act like OG be dying to speak. Like I'm itching to speak before a talking piece is passed to me. Nah, B, words are too powerful just to be flown free. I'm home free. Can't even believe they let me roam free. Almost had me believing they own me. Gonna make them wish they don't me. I got a master degree, skills are honed, B. I used to think that drama was karma, fighting over who I'm talking to. Some are bringing out negative attitudes. Can get bruised bringing home food cause every primate knows how to use tools, especially when they feel screwed. I received lectures from Hannibal Lecter's, cut the hands off of cell kleptos. Mind over body weights, I helped those. I did 20 years, man, I felt those. My soul was forged in a hole. You can't know what you hold till C Cypher calls control. When they roll the door, laced up, prepare for war. My soul shines bright, but my flames feel cold. To understand what I'm saying, you have to understand the tactics. I could tell you all about laying on that plastic mattress. I can tell you, you better be stone cold because this ain't no play acting. This ain't the place where you can run around without some type of backing. This is the home of the captive where only your reputation factors, where you can't get caught slipping, hustling backwards. Places ruled by pseudo slave masters refusing to ditch old habits. I know you see me, realizing how real I see me. Love is more than anything. Love is more than the alternative. Love is what the transformation's got to be. I hear some of y'all growling, men feeling love is weak. But tell me, what makes a brother kill or die for another if it's not for love, B? Love has given me power beyond belief. I surround myself with love, even though it rides right beside grief. I equate love to peace. So my greed is salam if you choose to face East. Agape love is what I read Gandhi and Dr. King preached. So despite what I've been through, love is how I greet you. Welcome to the Freedom and Captivity podcast, a podcast about abolitionist organizing and visions and means. My name is Catherine Besterman, and I'm the host of the podcast. And today's podcast addresses the question, how does accountability for causing harm show up in abolitionist thought? In an abolitionist society, how do we imagine accounting for harms that people do to one another? Is punishment the only or the best response to harm? That poem that you heard is by Joseph Jackson, our guest on the podcast today. I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. And it's kind of a long introduction because... Uh, he does a lot of things. Joseph Jackson directs the Maine Prisoner Advocacy Coalition, an organization he founded after serving 19 years in prison in Maine. While incarcerated, Mr. Jackson founded the Maine State Prison Chapter of the NAACP. He became a literacy volunteer. He completed his associate's degree and his bachelor's degree, then his master's of fine arts, and then another master's degree in 2015. Mr. Jackson is a published poet and a performer who has worked to create opportunities for incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people to train in the arts and to share their art through performance. He is the Director of Leadership Development for Maine Inside Out, 
the Collaborative Theater Ensemble of System Impacted Youth. He co-founded Restorative Artworks, which creates original theater for those affected by PTSD from incarceration. He also advises Maine Youth Justice, a youth-led coalition working to end youth incarceration in Maine. They say he's the only adult that they allow into their meetings. And he serves on the Juvenile Justice Task Force for Maine. He's a tireless advocate for the rights of incarcerated people in Maine. And I'm delighted to bring him to you on this podcast today. Thanks, Joseph, for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. So I want to start off by just asking us to asking you to tell us about yourself and the work that you do, how you came to your current work with MPAC and with Maine Youth Justice. Who is Joseph Jackson? Well, I came to this work because, um, you know, I spent, um, you know, some years inside of Maine Department of Corrections. Um, and while I was there, you know, um, you know, in getting my education, I began to see things in a highly different light and how um, I just want to say contra controversial some of the and contradictory some of the policies and principles were compared to what they say they were trying to do. And then lastly, you know, I mean, the environment that I was in was trauma filled. I mean, it was a trauma filled environment. I saw, uh, you know, people enduring psychological, what I can only describe as psychological torture on a daily basis. And so um, when I when I was relief, released, I just I just felt I just had to do something to change that system that I couldn't see people, um, you know, that I've grown, grown to know and care about. Um, just continue to exist in a um, you know perpetual state of psychological you know I mean trauma and so that really got me really involved in the work and passionate about the work and I really want to thank you for that introduction that some of the bios probably drives it a little bit so I've been doing this for a long time um, you know from beginning with it on the inside you know to call for change and you know just you know that my vision wasn't realized so I'm still working at it so you're, you're everywhere doing doing this work, um, and it's it's amazing to see how MPAC has grown uh, just over the past five six years or so. Can you can you talk a little bit about the the growing impact of MPAC, the growing number of people associated with with MPAC, um, the growing vision that you guys have for what you're trying to do here in Maine? Well, thank you for those questions. Yeah, I mean. Um... I started with, um, so first of all, when I was released and um, a friend of mine was um, coordinating with um, Impact, who was also inside, um, reached out to me right away um, and they offered me a position um, to come in. And it was the first time in my life I had been solicited for a job. I, I mean, they were like, uh, you know, we can't offer you that much. And what you bring to us is, you know, I mean, tremendously more valuable. And no one had ever said that to me. So that was one. And then, you know, getting there, um, I think that, you know, being part of the work, hadn't done some of the work a little bit on the inside, I recognized the need for, you know, coalition building, really to get out here, know people, get to know who's doing what. Um, can we sway people on to what our values and principles and purpose are and, and get them on our side? Um, recognizing that, you know, I mean, we were gearing up for a campaign against a juggernaut. Um, the main department of corrections is a juggernaut. It is, you know, I mean, um, one of the, one of the hugest, um, administrations, um, in our state. Um, and, you know, any small entity trying to go up against it needs, needs, needs backing and fellows and partners. And so, yeah, we've, um, 
we've grown um, quite a bit over the past several years with our outreach and public education arm, public engagement arm. Um, we're really getting folks who are system impacted, you know, I mean, to start talking about their stories and their issues and getting involved in the solution to the problem. Um, and so, um, yes, we are, are um, in the midst of tremendous amount of success where it feels like our messaging is um, finally starting to resonate. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, that's um, an incredibly important point. Um, and just the, the powerful message that you're disseminating across the state uh, as, as people encounter the work that you're doing and the vision that you have for how you'd like to change things and how you're going up against the juggernaut. Let's talk about that for a moment. Going up against the juggernaut is in effect an abolitionist stance. Um, and so I wanna question you about abolition. A lot of people who are worried about what, an aboli what abolition might mean argue that without prisons, we don't have any way to hold people accountable for harms they've caused. You know, you hear, what are we gonna do with people who have done bad things if we don't have prisons? So I wanna ask you about accountability. And I wanna ask you what you think accountability should look like. And also about the relationship between accountability and punishment. Mm. I think you, you raise a lot of good questions. I think the way that I would answer that is, uh, is that I think there are ways. I think that one is the people that make the argument that um, we need punishment as a form of accountability, you know, um, you know, many people are afraid. They're afraid to step outside of the comfort box. Um, uh, and, and let's just face it, this current justice, um, justice, criminal justice system has served some folks really well um, and, and, and not others not so well. I think that we can look back at, um, you know, other principles and other forms of um, what accountability looks like in community. Um, in community, um, accountability looks like restoration of harm that's ever been caused. And so um, for me, when I think about what accountability looks like, I think about how do we restore the harm if there's harm that has been caused? And then um, how does the community do that, does that? Because I think that right now, um, a lot of these things have been taken out of the hands of the community and the folks that have been impacted by stuff. And then lastly, I would just think about, you know, the formation of this. Um, I, so I'm a, I'm a philosopher. I believe in philosophy. Um, so one of the things about my, when I read, and I, I love Socrates, the story of Socrates, um, that when Socrates had committed an offense in the community, um, you know, he was chosen, you know, he was found guilty and the punishment was either death, but there was another option. And that other option was exile. And so uh, I think about that there are many options that, that are ranged between, you know I mean, what, what it could look like, but whatever it looks like should look like something that's about restoration of harm and, 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 and in fact, not committing more harm. And so I don't, know the, I don't know the full answer to that question. I think that we have models of, um, you know, what it could look like um, there, you know, particularly um, in Europe, um, there are some models um, that, you know, where crime seems to be way down, um, people are not, um, confined in steel boxes with bars and, um, you, know, you know, held at shotgun point, I mean, 24 hours a day. And yet, um, you know, their, their citizenry feels safe. Um, and I, and I, I don't think that's what we have now. I think what we have now is um, there's a lot of fear. And I think it's a lot of fear in spite of the fact that we have um, this huge juggernaut um, 
which is seems to me has exacerbated the problem rather than um, you know became a solution for one. So. so you're talking about the ways in which people who are on the inside suffer from psychological abuse, um, the harms of that are being inflicted upon them by the system that we have, by the juggernaut system. Um, it, it's definitely a system people you know, want to call it the criminal punishment system rather than the criminal justice system because it seems oriented towards exacting punishment rather than uh, some sort of accountability or harm reduction or really even justice. And can you, can you philosophize for us uh, for just a moment about, about the punishment society that we've built for ourselves? Why are we so invested in punishment? What does punishment do? What is the purpose of, of such punishment? <laughs> well, I'm not thinking, I think I'm the wrong person to ask for that since I've been on the uh, on the end of it. I don't understand what the purpose of that punishment is. I think that um, I failed to see the connection between um, the level of accountability and punishment we are currently um, um, utilizing and the benefit to the person who was harmed. So there's no connection between those things. So if there was a victim in a particular case or if somebody broke a window, I mean, there are so many things for which people can go to, um, um, you know, be lose their freedom over. Um, it might not even be another victim. It could be, there's so many victimless crimes where people are being held accountable by, accountable by through the loss of their freedoms. And so, but I, I really think that when we think about um, punishment and retribution, uh, 95% of those that we send in, how do we want people to return? And so if you set up a, a system of punishment and retribution by which now I'm just, you know, I'm holding you to this level of accountability because I have got power over you. There's a lot of resentment and anger, um, you know, and desperation in folks because now you're releasing, now they're mad, they're, you know, desperate and they're released without resources. What does that do to the community? <laughs> I mean, um, did you um, make them safer? Uh, and so I mean, these are questions that I ask. And, and I think that when we think about what accountability looks like, I, so one of the reasons I th believe it exists, and the reason I believe it exists is because, you know, through another hat, economics, um, you know, um, jails and prisons are, you know, considered to be middle-class jobs. What, what, where would the industry be? Where would the state be if it couldn't, if it didn't have that to offer? And we're talking about, you know, uh, uh, you know, 300 plus excess million dollars worth of revenue going into that. The buildings are built. So, the, you know, it's really into salary, right? And so we've built this juggernaut of people whom rely on it for their livelihoods. This is also a component of, of criminal justice that I think that people fail to recognize is that so many people livelihoods are dependent upon um, punishment and retribution. And that instead of, you know, looking at some of these issues, and then I, I guess the other part I was want I, I think I would have to include anytime we're talking about, um, you know, criminal justice system and who's been impacted. You're absolutely right. There is, I mean, justice would mean that you know, if every citizen is the same and that, you know, I mean, are subjected to the same penalties as everyone else. And so one of the aspects that's inherent in our system of justice is that's not the case. 
um, if you have wealth, you're not necessarily um, subjected to the same penalty someone else might be. If I have wealth um, and I get arrested for something, $500 bail money is not going to keep me in jail, you know, um, you know, and it's, it's, it's a penance. But if you're poor, $500 is a huge barrier for you for freedom. And so I, I think that when we begin to start looking at some of these other aspects of our criminal justice system and the fact that it impacts different segments of our communities disproportionately, then you know, not only do we have to you know, I mean, reconcile with the moral issue of punishment and retribution, but now we have to look at these other issues of, okay, well, what does justice mean if it only applies to certain groups? And I think that's that's some some of the fundamental things that, that I think that when I think about abolition, when I think about what justice should look like, um, these are key things that stand out for me. Yeah, thank you for articulating that so so clearly. Um, I've heard you talk about community accountability for people who are struggling um, in a, in a really impactful way. You talked you talked once uh, in a forum that we were involved in about what you witnessed once you got out of prison in the community that you were living in when you got out and you saw what happened in that community with kids who were struggling. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so that was, that's, that's, that's one of my great contradictions. So I, prior to entering prison, I'm like so many folks, I was, I was living on the, you know, I was living in poverty. Um, I, in the neighborhood that I lived in, I saw a police car every 10 minutes, you know, um, and, uh, you know, and that was just my reality of, you know, during that period. But when I, you know, after my education, after I was released, um, a family took me into their community and it was a pretty upscale community. Um, the, you know, the housing values were pretty, pretty significant. And I lived there for three years. And in three years, I may have seen an officer a couple of times in three years versus every 10 minutes. And that was one. And then as I began to get to know the neighbors and you know, you, you, you're in a community, you're in a neighborhood, you get to know the people around you, the people around you have kids. But then I started seeing their kids are going through the same kind of stuff. The young people I know and grew up around was going through um, having troubles in school, getting, you know, in, you know, trouble in school, but they didn't get kicked out of school. They just got, they found them a new school. Everybody banded around them to find out what's wrong. What can we do to help? And, you know, and, you know, there was, and it never let up. They never gave up on trying for, for this young person. Young people experimented with drugs and alcohol. Um, you know, they got picked up. They brought, brought home. Um, the police brought them home. They didn't take them to jail. They didn't arrest them. They gave them warnings. Um, you know, that's not what happens in other neighborhoods. And that's why, I mean, it really opened my eyes about what safety looks like, what community looks like, and it also about selective, you know what I mean, enforcement, um, who we police.
Um, and so that that definitely um, is definitely a huge motivator. It is a huge motivator when I speak because I believe that, um, you know, if justice was justice, it would be for the same for everybody, but, you know, not just for us poor people, you know, as, you know, I, you know, I used to be. Yeah, thank you. Um, that, that directly relates to the concept of harm, I think. Uh, the, the feminist criminologist, Dr. Venezia Michelson, says what we think is, is the harm is not actually the harm. Right now, we have a prison system that punishes some people for the harms they may have caused. Well, at the same time, all other sorts of harms go completely unaccounted for. I think this is a corollary to the point you just made about communities where the police pick up kids and communities where the community wraps around the kids and, and supports them. Um, can you talk about, about harms and who is supposed to, who, is, who gets punished for the harms that they're committing or may be committing and whose harms are going unnoticed, unaccounted for, unpunished? You know, I, um, thank you for that question. Um, you know, when I think about the harm that's being caused, and um, so we have people that are incarcerated, we have people that, that have lost their freedom, but one of the things that has become clear is that um, though that person that lost their freedom is the only, not the only person impacted. Um, and that there are many folks um, that they've left behind loved ones, people that depended on them, uh, left back in the community. The community is now, um, you know, harmed by them not being present. And so when you have other folks by extension that are, have been impacted by, you know, uh, not now, not this act this, this person has committed or done, but by the state itself. How do you reconcile those things? How do you, I mean, um, we're, I mean, at one point, I think that um, Maine Children Alliance said there were 20,000 children impacted by having an incarcerated parent in Maine. Um, what happens to those? Are they not harmed? Are they not impacted by having a significant breadwinner um, taken out of their family? What does accountability look like to them? Um, where is the restoration of for harm for them? Um, when I think about things like that, I think about a lot of harms, um, you know, in primitive society, they have a thing that they, where everybody in the community comes together, they come together in circle. Um, and the person, along with, with the person who's committed to harm and the person who, um, you know, had been harmed. And there was some active dialogue and community dialogue about what does it take for the harm that has been, um, you know, you know, that's happened to a person to be to be restored. How can we restore them? And um, you know, all of this has been taken out of the hands of the community, and uh, and so I feel like that many of the situations, particularly with drug, you know, abuse and drug substance use disorder, um, you know, which our prisons are filled with folks like that. Um, that they sh it wouldn't, be, and our our prison system would be minuscule in size, and not only not only minuscule in size, but now you think about if we really employ some of them same resources to that minuscule size um, population, um, we could definitely do something that doesn't look like this current structure. And I think that what we've built is something that we have to dismantle and to rebuild again.
Yeah, I've heard from the Justice Policy Institute an estimate that something like 60 to 70 percent of people living in Maine have been impacted by the criminal punishment system in some way, by either being incarcerated themselves, having a loved one incarcerated, um, being under some sort of supervision, carceral supervision. I mean, that, that's an astonishing number. That, that's a society in trauma in terms of my way of thinking. <laughs> it's like yeah, collective. <laughs> Uh, collective um, harms heaping on, on harms. So thank you for that clear articulation of of the the compounding harms of the system. Yeah, and, and, and I think, because uh, I, I will be um, amiss of myself if I didn't talk about young people and the impact the criminal justice system has on young people and overall. And so one of the things that I find really interesting in having this conversation, particularly around abolition is, um, when I started looking at youth justice, because, you know, I'm, I'm, I was within the adult system, but I went, where do people, where does it start? Is a question I had. And, you know, recently I started looking at when I started going and talking to young people, I had a program where I talk about how to navigate the system and, you know, for, you know and, you know, heal yourself. Um, I recognize 100% of the young people that I was spe- speaking to have been suspended from school. And I thought, wow, a hundred percent. And so then I started going to you know some schools, and I'm, I'm starting to recognize that it's not only that we are identifying these young young people; we're identifying them as young as in third grade, fourth grade. We're identifying them. Teachers are saying, "Ah, oh, you're going to be in Long Creek." You know, and. You know, so we're looking at these young people there and those out of suspended are now ending up in the youth justice system, which mirrors the adult system. It looks the same, except we call it juvenile justice. And it's no surprise that, you know, when they are released at 18 years old or 17 years old, emancipated, um, 44% of them return, but they're returning as adults. And so when you look at um, many of the um, adult men and women who are incarcerated in our system, uh, if they're from Maine, the odds are pretty good. They went through our juvenile system. And the thing about it is, is that no one blames the juvenile system when it now has guardianship and supposed to be taken over for the care of young people, its failure rate is not even looked at as a failure rate. That 44 is the first year. And so we're really feeding it from the time we start identifying these young people in school. We now, they're out of school. Law enforcement is involved because they have no, you know, no resources, nothing to support them. They get put in a system that really starts to criminalize them in a way and shuffle them toward an adult system. It is, it is an insidious system that it seems to be feeding itself. And you know, one of the indications is a few years back, um, Lewis and had um, Lewis and Maine um, had an article in Summer where they had over fourteen hundred suspensions. And, you know, over half of those suspensions were um, black and brown kids and mentally, mentally kids that suffer from mental health issues. That subsequently, Anglescoggin was one of the highest um, counties with um, juvenile incarceration. So when you start seeing these relationships of 
Now we have a, a, a kid system that looks like our adult system. You know, abolition and definitely for the kids have to start first. We definitely have to start um, um, taking care of the, our young people, giving them the resources they need. Every kid um, needs that those social development years to actually socially develop. And if we put them in, in positive and safe and stable environments, they will. We know this. And yet we don't want to put those resources there. This is why I'm involved with Maine Youth Justice. It's why I'm with uh, Maine Inside Out, because I believe that um, not only do we use art as a way of healing and restoration, but it's a form of just telling this story. This is a problem. Our plays are saying this is a problem. Our engagement with young people. Now young people are saying in, in, a, in their own campaign, in their own voices, this is a problem. Um, and it could have been done differently. And it should be. And we just have to be brave enough to reimagine what it could be. Thank you. Wow. I, I do want to ask you about the role of education and also about the arts, the power of the arts. But first, I want to just recount a, a, a brief story. I had a, a friend who was a sort of a maverick radical educator in South Africa come to visit me 20 years ago. I was living in Waterville. And I set up a day for him to spend in the local high school. And he finished off the day with a guidance counselor who uh, you know, told him about the statistics, how many kids go to college and um, how many kids are, are dropping out. And, um, and he was curious about the very large number of kids that weren't going on to college. And he said, well, what happens to them? And she looked at him and she said, they go to the military or they go to jail. Totally matter. He came home stunned. There's this matter of fact segue you know, this matter-of-fact pathway that this school guidance counselor laid out for him about what the likely, you know, future trajectory for a significant number of kids from that school system would be. It's really, really pretty stunning. Joseph, talk about education. You're highly educated. You did a lot of degrees while you were on the inside. You're an advocate for transformed educational systems for you. Um, you're going to be involved in, in shaping the way that the uh, Mellon Foundation-funded prison education program based out of UMA is going to be taking shape and put on board. Can you talk about your visions for education? What role you think that has in an abolitionist society? Yes, I mean education is. Um, uh, and thank you for that. I mean, I don't, I don't know that I'm highly educated. I feel like I'm educated. I think I'm. You know, one of the things I know as I'm educated is that there is so much to learn and. And so that means that there's so much, and there's a lot to know, and that I don't know, um, I know enough to know that I don't know a lot. Um, I think that's what I, I, I now kind of understand. But yeah, it's, it's absolutely, you're absolutely correct. I think that more so than just, just the education piece, but I, I want to take us you know, back that, you know, historically, you know, I mean, for certain communities, education has been like something that's a far off dream for people, you know, and that real education. And I'm talking about my heritage as a black person. So, you know, I'm the first person in my family, to, you know, to go to college. Um, and so when you have a family and, and, you know, that doesn't have don't understand the value, like I, I never understood and I never connected um, education with economic advancement or any kind of social advancement. I never, I never saw those connections when I know that in other cultures, they start talking about that at very young ages. Um, 
so for me, that was one thing. Um, and then second, um, once I began to, you know, heading down my, um, I guess, doing academic pursuit and, um, you know, this, this collegiate endeavor, I began to just open my eyes up to so much more that I began to see the structure underneath, you know what I mean? The structure, right? The origin of things, um, understanding, you know I mean? Where, you know, certain thoughts come from, who was the originator, what were the holes? How do you do critical thinking with it? And, and it just, you know, it just opened my, my mind and my eyes up in a way where, you know, I kept telling myself, I wish I had known some of these things when I was younger. And, and, it, and it just made me want to say, I wish I had somebody who, who, like who I am right now talk to me back then. And I think that drives me uh, more than anything because I, I really, you know, I really believe that if with knowledge it can help you overcome a lot of things. I think education is a great equalizer. Um, and um, yeah, just having said that, it can overcome so much and um, including some of our most base, um, you know, um, behaviors as a society, you know what I mean? What, regarding whether a person has a criminal conviction, whether a person has dark skin, um, in many ways, um, education is, um, you know, it can help you overcome any of those hurdles, but you know, not to say that they don't still impact you, but you, yeah, the, the impact is lightened. Yeah. Quite thanks. a bit. Um, and in addition to, to the role of education and your, and your understanding of the importance of, of having sort of education oriented role models, um, robust educational programs, opportunities for young people to develop their critical thinking skills, to sort of understand why things are the way they are, um, step out of perhaps either self-blame or falling, um, falling into the sort of explanations that are hegemonic about, about um, success and failure. Uh, you're also a real champion of the, the importance of the creative imagination. You're a poet yourself. You engage with Maine Inside Out in their performances. You helped found restorative artworks to, to people struggling with PTSD because of their incarceration. Talk to us a little bit about, about what creativity does for you, specifically in relation to abolition. Well, well creativity, well, you know, it's, it's that phrase. It goes back to that phrase, lock your body, but they can't lock your mind. Creativity is that thing. Um, and for me, create um, art and creativity, um, you know, help me through all of those periods. But I think create, creative artwork and creativity is much more than that. I think it's a fuel for so much entrepreneurship about creativity. I mean, I used it um, while I was inside um, and I just feel like that, uh, creativity is the answer to a lot of things. I mean, healing and restoration, um, a way of describing and articulating the world around you and kind of like, you know, getting a, a grasp of it, of something that's outside yourself, this concepts. And then lastly, I, I would say that, you know, in all other areas like entrepreneurship, you know what I mean? In, in order to be an entrepreneur, in order to invent something, you have to be creative. So you're not just about artwork in order to, um, you know, think outside of the box that involves a form of creativity um, where, you know I mean? And, and where you're taking the information that at hand, but you're turning it into something else in you um, and how you 
um, take that, use that information and make it part of how you perceive. I think that is um, also an element that is, um, you know, create creative because we're not just memorizing what was stated. You know what I mean? Like the, you know, you know, Einstein said this, you know what I mean? But he said this, but now we're taking what he said and doing something else with it. We've made it our own in that way we describe it, um, what, what his principles were. And so to use that, to be, to be able to use the knowledge and um, that's been gained by other folks as a way of, you know, building and supporting yourself and healing yourself. Um, I think that's one of the things that I learned was almost nothing that I have been through some, you know, as a human being, someone else that I have been through and, yeah, you know, and we're in different stages of their experience with it. And so now when you can, you know, when you're educated and when you begin to use your creative mind, how can I take what you're, you did and use it for myself and um, in an imaginary way? So art, art in a way like that is, is, um, is, is good twofold. One is it helps you understand what's actually happening. Um, we, we use um, creative theater. Um, people are, you know, they have their, they have, everybody has a story. Um, and so, you know, why can't we take, and why, you know, we do take um, your story, um, break it down to those fundamental elements, human elements of, you know, that are embedded within those stories and, you know, act them out. And I think the reason that uh, it's so powerful is just because of that. Well, I mean, you know, if we're bipedal, two arms, two eyes, and we're mammal, and we have all the qualifications of Homo sapiens sapien, then what happens to other Homo sapiens sapiens resonates because we're also sharing similar feelings and experiences as we try to navigate, you know, life. And so when it's presented in front in, in, uh, in, in front of you, in a way, it's not just a showing of a thing that you are not interacting with. You actually begin to interact with what you're seeing, um, you know, on a, on a base level where now you're a participant because you're actually, you know, being engaged with it. And so that changes that, 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 that dynamic of us, them, um, that us, them, that other, that happens to other people dynamic into, hey, I feel that. And I don't feel that good to me. Um, and, you know, for some folks, when it don't feel that good to you, it's something that I feel like I should change. Um, and hopefully that's what I think that's what we built. We're building here in Maine is that we're raising people awareness that what we have doesn't feel good. Now, what's the solution? And I think the solution is gonna take the voices of all of us, including people who have been impacted by that very system. Yeah, that, that speaks so profoundly to what abolitionist organizers argue and emphasize over and over and over again, which is that abolition is not just about Defund the police, close down the prisons. You know, it's not just about burning, burning stuff up and, and breaking stuff down, that it's really most profoundly and most meaningfully about 
create creating and creating together, um, engaging and reimagining creative thinking, creative building, and that sort of in that sort of emotional register about what feels good in a society, what kind of a society feels good to live in. And you, you open by talking about the power of love and how love now you lead with love. Love is what you look for. It's what you surround yourself with. And so the question I want to end with is, is what does an abolitionist society look like and feel like to you? Well, it feels like a society where everybody matters and belongs. And it, it's, it's funny that I say that um, it's the purpose um, of Maine Inside Out. And I kind of help um, create that purpose. But uh, I think it feels like a world, um, a world where everyone feels like they matter and belong. And if you have a world where everybody feels like they matter and belong, I feel like, you know, I mean, there can nothing be more ultimate than that. But how do you get there, Joseph? What are the pieces of it? We've talked about schools that don't suspend kids, but, but invest I mean, in them. I mean, it's, um, so one of the things, um, and my young people said all the time is, well, you, you start with community. You start where you are. Um, you can't wait for it to be all of a sudden manifested. You start where you are in your community, and you do it by being open and reaching out. Um, Try to get to understand, um, you know, your neighbor. Um, try to get to understand what the guy who's standing on the corner and holding the sign saying, you know, I, I work for food um, or, you know, uh, I'm having a hard time. Try to understand, um, a, you know, where they are. And if you have the time, take time to hear their story. I think that's what it, what it is that we don't have the time to hear everybody's story. We don't take the time. And I think that um, that's a big mistake. And so hopefully what we're doing is we're going to continue to build relationships. Um, we're going to be in community with these relationships. And eventually what we, what will happen is that, you know, oh, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. Oh, I know them. And even though the two of you have never met, it's through all of those connections. Now it just changed the way I've met you. And it doesn't matter the color of your skin, your religion, what it is. And I think community can, can, can get to that place where we start caring for the least of us. Because that has to be part of it first. Um, we have to figure a way to care about those folks that are you know, marginalized that are, you know, and are not having all their needs met. And I think that if you could start with that, start reshifting, redirecting some of our resources in that, that way, um, you know, government has a public function, um, city councils um, and all of society, we have a public function to do this. And it's part of being a good citizen. And, uh, and so I feel like that once we build that, reprioritize where our money should go um, and how it should be spent. Um, and, you know, reprioritize community and particularly um, communities that, you know, while the industry have left. You know, um, Lewiston used to be a vibrant town at one point. Um, now it's rated as one of the poorest with few industry. And so now we recognize that as a society, what's our, it's not a handout, but it's a recognition 
of the economic landscape. And I think that we start have to really, really, really pay attention to those things. Yeah, that's so well put. Um, safety, security to be found in reaching out, embracing, connecting, knowing, as opposed to isolating and closing. Uh, you know, sa- safety isn't, isn't um, through cutting people off. It, yeah. it, it really does come from, from that sort of connection and growth. Joseph, thank you so much for making time to talk with us. And thanks for the amazing work that you're doing across the state. Encourage our listeners who aren't familiar with MPAC or Maine Inside Out Justice to go find them online and get involved. And Maine Youth Justice. Yeah, and Maine Youth Justice, yep. Uh, Please join us for next week's Freedom and Captivity podcast episode, which is going to be a conversation moderated by Ali Ali, who is with Maine Youth Justice. Uh, He's going to be talking with two other youth organizers who are working to build an alternative to incarceration for Mainers. This episode and future episodes will all be available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, the Freedom and Captivity website, and the Portland Media Center website. We are really grateful to the Portland Media Center for supporting this podcast series, to Josh Riddle in particular for his sound engineering, and to Samuel James for the music that opens and closes our episodes. Thanks so much. See you next week.